What's good, everybody? It's Sunday, September 24th. I'm Dion Rabowin for The Wall Street Journal, and this is WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. This week, Nike is set to report earnings. The global sneaker giant is looking a little less formidable these days, with its stock down by around 20% year-to-date. We'll talk to a top analyst who's bullish on the company about what's gone wrong and why she still has faith the company can turn things around. And a new comedy about the meme stock trading craze is coming out this week in wide release. We'll talk to a Wall Street Journal reporter who covered the mania to find out what the movie gets right and what it gets wrong. But let's start things off in Paris, where it's time for one of the most anticipated events in all of fashion. However, this year, Paris Fashion Week may be a bit more subdued. After seeing their stock prices hit record highs earlier this year, the stocks of big-name fashion and beauty brands are now struggling. Shares of French multinational Caring, which owns Balenciaga, Gucci, and Yves Saint Laurent, among others, are down more than 10% in the last three months. Tapestry, which owns American fashion brands including Kate Spade and Coach, is down by around 30% in that time. And makeup giant Estee Lauder has seen its stock fall by close to 25% in the last three months. We reached out to Caring, Tapestry, and Estee Lauder, and they didn't respond to our requests for comment. These fashion behemoths have transformed and dominated the industry, and now they're facing some challenges. Ahead of the big week, I'm joined by Nick Kostov, WSJ's reporter in Paris, covering the luxury goods industry. Nick, first of all, looking at your recent reporting, I want you to talk to me about the growing influence of mega conglomerates in fashion, like LVMH, uh, this big conglomerate of Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy. It's also a lot of other brands. Fashion companies tended to be small, kind of family-run. But in recent years or over the past couple of decades, we've seen the birth of these conglomerates that bring together sometimes, like LVMH has 75 brands, going from Dior to Louis Vuitton to Celine to Moet to Hennessy, etc. And what that allows these conglomerates to do is essentially use their economies of scale to, for example, ring savings on real estate. So if a conglomerate goes and starts to negotiate with a, with a mall operator or a mall owner, they can say, you know, we take an entire floor or we take several spaces and you're not just fighting for one space. So you obviously get advantageous rates. And so what we've seen are these big companies kind of pulling away from their smaller competitors and being rewarded by the market. These conglomerates now are worth hundreds of billions in the case of, for example, LVMH. They do things on such an enormous scale that it's become very hard for these single brands, these monobrands to actually compete with them. And in recent years with that, and even in the first half of this year, the fashion sector kind of was to the European stock market what big tech has been to the U.S., right? It's this collection of dominant businesses whose growth has really held up even as the economy hit some bumps. But We've seen a reversal of that a little bit. Talk to me about what's going on with luxury stocks. So on the market side, for the first six months of the year, we saw many record highs. And there was a lot of hope around the reopening of China, because China has traditionally been, at least in recent years, the biggest luxury market. A third of luxury spending comes from China. This fell quite precipitously during COVID. And so there was a lot of excitement around the reopening. And what we've seen, actually, is that Chinese spending 
has not ramped up in the way that many executives expected. And so we have the numbers for the summer in Europe and the Chinese spend here on luxury was just 40% of what it was before COVID. And so that's been weighing on luxury stocks a lot. You know, from the kind of springtime highs, LVMH is down about 20%. Richemont, which owns Cartier, is down about 20%. So all these guys are suffering from a slowdown in China. And on top of that, we have seen that the US has slowed down also quite dramatically. And that's partly because, again, after COVID, wealthy Americans were spending a lot of their kind of pandemic savings on luxury goods. Lots of new people came into the market. And during COVID, actually, the U.S. spending on luxury more than doubled. The economy in the U.S., there are many question marks around it. The stock market has been rising and falling. We've been talking a lot about possible recession. And so you've got China hasn't come back in the way that luxury executives hoped. The U.S. has slowed down. And so this has resulted in share prices falling. Do you expect the slowdown in the stock prices to kind of rain on the parade that is Paris Fashion Week? In a way, yes, the euphoria is over. And there was a euphoria, you know, even during COVID and and post-COVID, there was a frenzy of buying of luxury goods. This is over. We're going back towards a period of normalization. And I think what luxury executives are really, really focused on right now is China. And that is raining slightly on the parade of Paris Fashion Week. I mean, these companies are still doing extremely well. The earnings are okay, but they are hugely invested in China. In one of your stories, you talked about LVMH's chief financial officer saying the company was experiencing a little bit of pressure with the American consumer and really talking about those aspirational luxury customers. If you could talk to me a little bit about who that aspirational customer is and why this shift has happened where these luxury brands are much more now tied to the fortunes of Joe Sixpack. (laughs) Yeah, so that luxury customer is somebody who just saves up to buy, let's say, a Louis Vuitton wallet or a Dior fragrance, and they spend, you know, a few hundred dollars, a couple thousand dollars on a piece of luxury. Again, they're responsible for quite a large percentage of luxury firms' earnings. And so what these companies have been very good at is getting the aspirational clients with small, relatively inexpensive items and trying to hold them, trying to funnel them to the more expensive items as these consumers get richer as they get older. And so this kind of corporate strategy means that, again, they are more tied to the world economy today than they have been in the past. And you will see their share prices move up and down based on what's going on in the world. Luxury goods is actually quite a sticky product. Once you start to buy, you know, a certain quality of handbag or a certain quality of shoes, it's sometimes hard to go back. Yeah, you're saying once you start balling, it's hard to stop. (laughs) Yeah, once you start balling, it's hard to stop. Then at some point, maybe you run out of money and you have to stop. That was Wall Street Journal reporter Nick Kostoff. When we come back, we'll talk about another big-name global brand that has been underperforming in the stock market this year, Nike. I'll be joined by Barclays research analyst Adrian Yee, who is expecting the company's stock to trade 25% higher in the next 12 months. You'll hear about why the stock is currently down and why she believes it will bounce back. This message comes from Viking committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.
It's been a tough year for Nike. Its stock price is down around 20% so far this year. Like the luxury brands Nick just told us about, the slowdown in China's economy is hurting Nike too. It's facing renewed questions over the use of forced labor in its global supply chain. At its annual meeting earlier this month, investors voted down a shareholder proposal that would have required the company to detail what it's doing to meet international human rights standards. In response to the proposal, Nike said it, quote, strongly believes in and is committed to respecting human and labor rights. The company is also trying to make the difficult transition from being largely a wholesale company that sells its gear to the likes of Foot Locker or Dick's Sporting Goods to a company that sells directly to consumers. If Nike can sell shoes and apparel through its sneakers app, or Nike.com, it keeps a larger share of the money from that purchase. That transition is going a little more slowly than some investors would like. Nike CEO John Donahoe told shareholders earlier this month that the company is, quote, confident in growth opportunities like running, and, quote, Nike will stay on the offense. To talk through all things Nike, I'm joined by someone who looks at all that and makes recommendations to professional money managers, Barclays Managing Director and Consumer Discretionary Senior Analyst Adrian Yi. Adrian covers retail, apparel, and e-commerce. She has a $124 price target on Nike in the next 12 months, and she recommends investors hold a higher percentage of Nike stock relative to its peer group. Her target for the stock is just below the average analyst rating, according to the ratings of 35 analysts tracked by FactSet. Adrian, you're bullish on this stock. Why? So the big picture is that Nike is still the number one brand globally. It's got universal brand awareness and universal brand equity. They have significant growth outside the United States. Believe it or not, the U.S. is less than half of their sales. So you really have China as a big piece of the growth. Pre-pandemic, China was kind of, let's call it high teens, 18% of their total sales. And on a compound annual growth basis, over the next five years, three to five years, it was going to be a quarter of their business. It's now sitting at 14, 15%, right? So not only in those past three years has it not grown to the, the proportion it should be, it actually retreated pretty significantly. And so that part of the business really does need to grow in order to help the consolidated margin actually expand over time. So you've got a pretty aggressive price target on Nike. It's about 25, 30 percent higher than where the stock is. So clearly you believe in the company. You believe in the brand. What do you want to hear in this earnings report that's going to show you that they are back on track? So long-term investors who are kind of underwrite the stock, they need two things from it. Okay, one is a long-term, which is China. If China misses, if China's not strong, not growing double-digit, the long-term investors are going to have a problem thinking that this highest and most profitable segment of the business is sort of the underpinning of the growth, the growth story. That's a problem. Because at the end of the day, Nike is a growth story. Growth stories must grow the top line, number one. <laughs> That's the definition. And then the second thing that you absolutely have to have, you have to have wholesale growing year on year. And the next number that we're going to hear are up against their two most heroic whether it's wholesale in North America or wholesale for the total company, they're up against a 37% growth in the November quarter just for North America, but it's 19% for the total company. That's really, really going to be hard. Adrian, I'm not, I'm not hearing a lot of good news here. <laughs> so the good news is wholesale is 
if think about it from an annual standpoint, mm-hmm. right? In the first two quarters of the year, they shipped the product. And when they shipped the product, they shipped more than that particular season, right? Because the great thing about footwear is you can sell it in January, you can sell it in July, and then you can sell it next January. And our version is that come May of next year, once they start growing wholesale again, then you'll start to see some people coming back into the fold. One other thing that's been in the news, we've been hearing a lot more about shrink, or for those who don't cover the retail sector, theft. We've been hearing about organized crime rings, all these things, and WSJ has reported that Nike has been at the center of a lot of that. How much credence are you giving to that as a stock analyst? You know, the interesting thing about shrink, and I know it's at the forefront of everybody's mind, it is a big deal. But shrink generally is about 1% of the P&L. And so when it goes up 100, it's another 1% off the P&L. And right? it's profit and loss, yeah. And remember, shrink is also loss and damages. It's a whole bunch of stuff. But the incremental shrink that's happening year to date is organized crime. And that typically happens in the stores. The theft happens when we are in periods of economic distress. And as the economy improves, I would be shocked if this level of theft continues. So you follow the consumer discretionary sector broadly. What is it that we can learn from these Nike earnings that's going to tell us more about the environment for retail and the environment for the economy? So I think, number one, our view is that coming into this print, North America does not look great. It looks about as great as everybody else who has already printed, weakening. And so I think they'll validate that. It's all about after a year passes, you normalize kind of the shipping schedule and things get back online. And back half of 2024, wholesale's back in the black. Is there something that we could hear on the earnings call or see in the earnings report that makes you say, you know what, that's it, I'm out? There's probably not much that would cause me to lose faith in the longer term brand status of Nike at this point in the cycle. It would almost be throwing in the towel, right, in the last mile of that marathon. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a couple of uh, speed bumps mm-hmm. that could absolutely they, show been, up. They've been rough speed bumps they've so far this year. They've been rough speed bumps, absolutely. But when we get through this cycle and things tighten up again and demand in the U.S. kind of recovers, as we know that it will, just a matter of time, right? And then they have that ship right-sized, the, the supply-demand. Nike as a brand, is going to be back at the top. That was Barclays retail apparel and e-commerce analyst, Adrienne Yee. She likes the stock, and I appreciate her joining us. Most stock analysts only want to talk about stocks when they're performing well, and I appreciate her having the courage to talk about a stock that isn't. When we come back, we'll talk about the new Seth Rogen comedy, Dumb Money, and what the movie gets right and wrong about the meme stock trading craze. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash W-S-J. One more thing before we get out of here. 
The movie Dumb Money is opening in theaters nationwide this week. It's about the meme stock trading mania that dominated headlines in 2021. You remember Roaring Kitty, Robin Hood, AMC, GameStop. My colleague Gunjan Banerjee had a front row seat for the meme stock saga, and her reporting helped create the Netflix documentary about it called Eat the Rich. She watched Dumb Money, and she had some notes. Namely, on the happy ending, which saw retail traders beat the system and come out on top. Sure, this happened for some retail traders who bought stocks like GameStop and AMC when they were at their lows and sold when shares were up hundreds or even thousands of percentage points. But Gunjan told me that wasn't the case for most people trading meme stocks. A lot of people were buying this on the way up. You know, the stock was trading at $300, $400. People were buying at those levels. And a lot of them lost their shirts. You talk to a lot of those people, a lot of those retail investors. How are they doing now? And tell me some of the stories that you've heard. That's really another thing that struck me is while I was watching in the movie, people eagerly smashing the buy button, like cheering each other on and kind of talking about this revolution that they were in. I couldn't help but recall the hours of conversations that I'd had with investors on the losing side of those trades. People who said, hey, I realized I was lucky, not necessarily a good investor. In reality, the meme stock story isn't about how a bunch of regular Joes took down the system. Yeah, a couple Joes and Janes got rich and a couple hedge funds lost money. But what really happened was big Wall Street firms like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley and Citadel raked in huge profits. But that's not where the story ends. The real legacy of the meme stock craze is that millions of people opened up brokerage accounts and started investing. They got into the stock market, and data show that more retail traders are treating investing as a way to grow their money over time, rather than a way to get rich quick. For a very long time, investing has been reserved for the wealthy. That's changing. GameStop and meme stocks were a part of that. And maybe that's the real revolution. All right, that's everything you need to know to take on the week for Sunday, September 24th. The show is produced by Jess Jupiter. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers. Michael also wrote our theme music. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Sinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Dion Rabowin. Stay smart. Technology can make the world better. At UST, we're building a future where people everywhere are empowered to live better lives. It's transformation you can feel. And you don't have to do it alone. We believe in the power of technology to transform businesses and build a better world. 